So this um, being a Thanksgiving holiday, tomorrow Thanksgiving Day, and uh, so I, uh, it occurred to me to um, might be a good topic for uh, a Dhamma talk this evening. So first of all, I'd like to express my gratitude to uh, Ajahn Sundra's um, skills as a, a chorister. The <laughs> 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 uh, masterful training in a in a brief period has uh, upgraded the the um, Brahmacharya realm to a hitherto unvisited heights of <laughs> glory. And uh, also I'd like to uh, express my gratitude. Uh, um, so many people responded by descending to the floor. It's very uh, grateful when you're in a position of teaching the signs that people actually listen to what you say <laughs> are uh, wonderful. And I actually listen to what I say, that's even better. <laughs> you know, when you're giving all this good advice, occasionally arises, yeah, I should do that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. So uh, when we're teaching, you should also bear in mind we're teaching ourselves as much as we're teaching you. So gratitude is... Um, Uh, is a powerful and wonderful quality. Um, actually, what springs to mind first of all is uh, some years ago um, on uh, Thanksgiving Day in uh, in uh, a local paper there was a Gary Larson cartoon, which uh, the scene was a, a farmyard and um, a, uh, um, there was a, a wooden uh, a wooden stump and a, and a, a farmer with a, a line of turkeys beside him and a farmer with an axe in his hand um, but in fact the farm was flattened on the ground and on top of him was this tree that had fallen over. So he splattered on the, on, the, on the floor the chicken run with the axe in his hand. And the turkeys were actually standing there saying, We thank you, Lord. <laughs> so that was uh, what immediately sprang to mind. Funnily enough, um, when I, I uh, and I, I've mentioned this a few times on, on previous Thanksgiving retreats, but uh, it's, maybe it's worth bearing and repeating how uh, when I, I first came here um, about 10 years or so ago and, and was um, staying here in the, in the Bay Area and um, talking with people about getting used to American customs and American festivals and holidays and different things. And um, also getting a bit of a sense of the, the history of, of this country and the um, uh, a bit more of the detail of what had happened to the to the uh, native peoples and the, uh, the the flood of the the uh, Europeans across the the continent in the 19th century, and uh, then getting a, a bit of the story behind Thanksgiving festival, and I thought, and I remember saying to some people one day. Well, I think it's, it's really great that at least one day in the year, at least one day, the, the white people in America express their gratitude and remember that it w if it wasn't for the, the native peoples uh, um, helping them, then they would never have made it through that, uh, that harsh winter. And so at least one day, there's an expression of kind of gratitude and, and respect. And so I'm waxing lyrically along this line 
and this sort of puzzled look appears on the, <laughs> the face of the person I'm talking to. And this is like a you know, sort of liberal lefty Bay Area type, you know, us lot, um, Bay Area type being. And so I'm, I'm in mid sentence, and they, and I, and they said, well, no, uh, no, no, that, that, and they were they kind of had this sort of hesitant, surprised look on their face, and. Um, and I said, uh, well, isn't that right? I mean, isn't that what, you know, it's like Thanksgiving. And he said, oh, I'd never actually thought of that. <laughs> I said, well, isn't that what it's, you know, giving thanks? You know, these, you know right, they, they were totally hopeless farmers. They couldn't make it. The local people helped them out, showed them what to, you know, how to hunt and how to find yams and catch the turkeys and grow this and that. And then they survived. And so the next year they had their harvest. They all survived. And then they all had a big feast together and they thanked them. Oh no. <laughs> no, 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 they were thanking God. Oh. <laughs> so um, that was a big surprise to me. <laughs> and it was equally revealing that this was a, like a completely competent adult, well informed uh, you know, American and white person, and it just had never occurred to them in their entire life. That the, thank, the thanking might have been to the actual other humans <laughs> who did the guiding and helping. So uh, I, uh, I, I like to put that into the mix, just so there is a um, in the, the flow of the Thanksgiving event, there is a, a recognition of um, that uh, uh, the cooperation and friendliness and mutual support that, on the basic human level, that occurred in those early days, and that uh, you can. Uh, you rejoice in that, and um, even if that wasn't the motivation for the Thanksgiving feast, I think it it uh, jolly well should have been. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> so, so gratitude um, is quite a it's a quiet feature in in the Buddha's teaching, but it's a fairly persistent one, and um, is, um, has a, a, a strength and many threads um, throughout the, the, the teaching, and in, in encouraging a, a, the, uh, it as a quality of relationship, one of the basic qualities of relationship that are in, encouraged. One of the very poignant and, and beautiful little passages that occurs in the scriptures is shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment, and he, he's living in the, the forest on the banks of the Niranjara River near Bodhgaya uh, after the, in the few weeks after the awakening. And the thought occurs to him, um, a person lives unhappily who has, who has nothing to, live up, to look up to. Someone is a, who has no one to look up to, no, no one to be grateful, nothing to, to look up to, lives unhappily. Who can I look up to? Who can I, who can I uh, express uh, that relationship of, of gratitude and, and uh, veneration for? And he thought, well, I myself uh, uh, have no teacher. I haven't, uh, I've arrived at this, this state of, of liberation through my own efforts. So there's no one in the world, no other person in the world that I can look up to. But I can look up to the Dhamma. I can look up to the, the truth, the, the Dhamma teaching. I can respect that. I can revere that. I can have gratitude for that. So um, uh, I will live uh, looking up to, revering, respecting, having gratitude for this, uh, for this wonderful Dhamma. So that always struck me as a very beautiful thing, uh, that uh, phrase, one lives unhappily who has nothing to look up to. Even a fully enlightened Buddha, thinking that that's a, a, an emotion, a, a, a stirring in his heart of um, just a, like a basic human appetite. Um, and that, uh, so we love to express and to experience that quality of gratitude. It's a delightful feeling, that quality of um, rejoicing and being, being glad in. So, um, in considering this, uh, uh, actually, the, the chant that we finish the um, 
the afternoon with the sharing of blessings. This encompasses a lot of um, the different areas that the you know the Buddha encouraged the quality of us to generate the quality of, of gratitude towards. I don't, I don't want to make a, a kind of laundry list, <laughs> but uh, I thought it might be. Uh, I'll try to reflect on some of those and um, just talk a little bit about those different areas and the different things that come up. And actually, maybe firstly, just that uh, the cultivation within ourselves of a gratitude towards Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Um, that uh, the. Um, the rituals of the morning and evening puja, the, the bowing, the chanting, the, the, the reciting of these, these verses that we do, um, these are uh, like a, uh, an expression, a formalized expression of that quality of, of uh, expressing gratitude, of being thankful, of, uh, of looking up to. And uh, you know, the words themselves, the chanting, you know, the, the, we do them in English as well as Pali, so that gives us a sense of, of how it's being phrased. Um, but sometimes, uh, and quite often, uh, for many people, you know, we're, we're not born as Buddhists. We're not sort of. Uh, most of us were not born into a Buddhist culture. A couple of people here um, were born in Thailand and have grown up in the, that kind of um, uh, sea of of devotion and faith, and um, have that uh, as a sort of a, an atmosphere for uh, for life. To, you know, being born into that and growing up in that. For most of us, we stumble into contact with, with Buddhism somewhere along the line. And mostly we enter because of an interest in meditation or a desire to stop suffering or, <laughs> or to make sense of this weird conundrum of, of human life. And so then we don't have a particular, like an immediate sort of heartfelt zing when we, we think of the word Buddha. You know, I remember one. Um, uh, one of the people in our community, it wasn't until uh, she actually was you know, inside the stupa in Bodh Gaya, uh, that uh, after having been a nun for, for quite a number of years, you know, the, the Buddha had always come across. Maybe she thought of the word Buddha, it had this sort of this feeling of threat, this sort of uh, uh, this power figure, this authority who was you know, watching what she was doing and going, not quite good enough, sister. <laughs> She was born as a Catholic. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain intensity of conditioning there, and that uh, she was unconscious of this. But she had, uh, she was, uh, but it was actually only when she is inside the the the, the stupa, the the great shrine at Bodhgaya, the Buddha's the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, and felt this overwhelming uh, strength of beauty and and uh, brightness and power. And then she suddenly realized that the, the previous number of years she sort of held the, 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 the Buddha in a very, very different place. It had been like this um, uh, very wise, but this sort of stern authority figure who was you know, ready to, to, you know, to scold her or catch her out if she was being a, a naughty nun. So oftentimes, uh, it takes a lot of years uh, to uh, to get some kind of emotional sense for that. Or when we repeat the words, it can be a kind of empty repetition, or that it's a, an intellectual appreciation. Um, and that the Buddha as a person can seem very remote, or the, or the Dhamma teachings and so on. And so that uh, it's, it's always important, you're not trying to force anything or create something which isn't there naturally. Um, so when um, you know, we are kind of contemplating that, sometimes it's helpful. This came up in one of the conversations today. That if we, or if we just feel downright alienated by you know the the sort of liturgical language and the revering of the, the the Buddha as a sort of heroic uh, spiritual figure, um, and it all seems a bit alien and remote or false or, or um, too much like our Anglican or Jewish or Catholic uh, conditioning, what can be helpful or, or where we can really contact that quality of, of gratitude is if we really look at it 
from from what has been the the, the contact point for most of us, because most of us, at least certainly was for myself, that the real contact point with Buddha Dharma was the the meditation and the effect of um, training the the heart uh, and the internal qualities uh, of uh, of Buddha Dharma and Sangha, the things that really uh, have a meaning, have an effect. The, The others. It really took you know, 15 or 20 years to say, oh, to hear the word Buddha and think, wow. Yeah, so if you're, if you're feeling that you were lagging behind, <laughs> it can take a long time to really soak in. So I, it's, I, you know, I don't think I'm alone in, the, in the, our monastic community in finding that. Um, so that uh, one one exercise I used to do, and I found this very revealing, because I, I used to worry about that. You know, when we do the chanting, and I would faithfully follow all the words and um, do all the right things, but there, you know, there, I didn't find any real heart in it, even when we did it in into English. When I began to to think of, particularly the Buddha as the quality of wisdom or uh, awareness itself, like it is. Blessedness, uh, awakened oneness. That uh, it's talking. If you take the he out and you put in it instead, and you you uh, you look at the same verses referring to the wisdom of your own heart, uh, then there's a um, we find like there is a an immediate recognition of yeah this is great stuff I'm really glad that there's wisdom here I'm really glad the heart can be awake and know um, that's a, a true uh, immediate experience that we've, we've known through meditation that we can say yeah it's wonderful that the heart can be awake can be free can be bright it is awake and holy there is a, there is that possibility so that we can begin to find that uh, quality of gratitude towards uh, the gratitude that there is the wisdom in our own heart, gratitude for for the for Dhamma, not just in terms of piles and piles of books of, of teachings, but Dhamma in terms of nature, the way things are, the natural order of things, that uh, a kind of um, delight in nature, it's like that in us, which is. Um, uh, like when we, we feel uh, that kind of loving relationship to the natural world, to uh, the sound of the, the frogs croaking or the rain falling or the, just the, uh, the creaking of our own joints. How beautiful. How <laughs> Nature isn't just frogs and rain. Nature is, is stiffening joints as well. So then the, the Buddha also, the, the teachings encourage uh, gratitude towards our spiritual teachers. Um, so obviously that's the, the, the people that we are, are, um, have inspired us, who have been a great spiritual resource, and who have um, helped us most directly. Uh, a gratitude springs forth very easily for most of us in, in that respect. Um, but also for the, the, the teachings that we, uh, and I kind of glossed over that quite quickly, but we can feel also um, cultivate a, a sense of uh, gratitude that you know, these, these wonderful verbal teachings have come down over the centuries. I remember some years ago I was leading a, a retreat at, at Amaravati Monastery in England, and it's about half the way through the retreat, and this um, one fellow um, who'd been meditating for, for quite a number of years, and this was, um, I, I knew quite well. Suddenly, during the course of the sitting, he just, there was this heaving sigh, this great moan, and, uh, and um, he kind of bent, uh, um, of course, I can notice this, and he bent over double, and he was just you know, keeled forward, sobbing, and for about five or ten minutes, and of course, everyone in the room is like, you're right. But he seemed to be still a sense of kind of okayness there. And, and then he sat up, and, and then he was just this tears pouring down his face. And every so often you hear this kind of great sigh and, and this sort of heaving. And 
Yeah, I said, well, he seems okay. Just let him, let him flow. <laughs> Come the end of the sitting, and people went out to walk, and I, um, I go, leaned over and said, "You okay, Vic?" And he says, "Yeah, I'm fine." And I said, um, "What was, what was that that was that was coming up? That was pretty um, powerful, obviously." He said. Well, I just had this sudden, I just, I just suddenly thought of the Heart Sutra and this overwhelming feeling of, of gratitude and, and joy um, swept over me, just thinking of the, 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 the teachings in the Heart Sutra. And so it just, that was what was happening. <laughs> I've been, meanwhile, I'm visiting, oh God, his mother must be dying, or, you know, his girl's left him, or his kids, his kids died, or. It's like, no, it was just pure rapture and delight about the form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form is not separate from emptiness, emptiness is not separate from form. There is no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, etc., etc. Which one could look at on paper and think, well, that's pretty clinical. <laughs> but yet there was this wonderful, bright uh, effulgence of, of, uh, of emotion that sprang forth in him. Also, one of the things that uh, uh, Ajahn Shah encouraged and uh, I found very helpful is not just the, uh, cultivating gratitude towards our teachers, but also those who have led us to the path or been responsible for, um, for helping us to, to find the path. Uh, when Ajahn Sumedho first was, uh, he, w he lived here in, in the Bay Area in the early 60s. He was a graduate student in Berkeley just as it was starting to get very interesting. So he left in 63. He said um, uh, he, he knew what was going to happen if he didn't leave. <laughs> he could see where his life was going. As a, um, it was all getting very, very exciting, and he was getting very uh, interested in the, uh, kind of, uh, the beatniks turning into the hippies, and all sorts of uh, very fascinating drugs were starting to circulate around the area, so he thought, better get out before I can't get out. So he headed to Thailand with the Peace Corps and um, ended up uh, ordaining as a, a novice there, up in the remote province of Nongkai, just across the river from Benchan, the capital of Laos, far away from, from uh, uh, the main civilization areas of uh, you know, central Thailand and uh, in a, a remote rural province. And um, he lived in retreat for the first year. And uh, he, he'd been interested in Buddhist meditation for a long time. He'd read a lot of Zen books that were published in the late 50s, Alan Watts and D.T. Suzuki and so on. <laughs> and he um, got a lot of inspiration from that, and he was very uh, powerfully attracted towards Buddhist meditation. And he'd studied these uh, Charles Luke books, uh, Chan and Zen Training, and he derived and uh, learned various techniques from, from those teachings. So he lived in this little monastery in Nongkai in seclusion, just him in a hut. He didn't have to go out on arms round, didn't have any duties, just him in his hut day after day for an entire year. Now you might, before this retreat began, you might have thought, wow, paradise. <laughs> but uh, as some of you are discovering, even being with your own mind for a day, five days, Whatever. Are we day five or day six? It's a, a, a day can be a long, long time. So here he was in this hut for a year. But he had many wonderful and powerful experiences, and um, wonderful and terrible uh, all. But he had this insight that uh, you know, he'd wanted to stay on as, uh, and become a fully ordained monk. But uh, he had this insight that he needed more discipline. That he was fine, just sort of being his, you know, under his own steam. But he needed to learn how to, to, um, to live in a, uh, with with uh, a sense of uh, a greater sense of discipline. And that was probably one of the reasons why he left Berkeley, because he could, <laughs> he didn't have a lot of self-control. So he thought that's why he, uh, one of the reasons why he left. It was getting very, very exciting. So he. Um, he had this in inspiration that, that uh, he should find a, a monastery where he could train in the Vinaya discipline a lot better than this meditation monastery where he was, where they focused on meditation, but it wasn't terribly strict in other ways. 
And at that time, this monk who was a, a, a student of Ajahn Chah happened to be uh, visiting a, a fam- attending a family funeral in Nongkai. And um, he uh, came to stay at this, this monastery. It was the only meditation monastery around Nongkai. And um, it just so happened that he also spoke some English, which in 1963, 60, no, 65, 66, was very, very unusual. And he'd been in the Thai Navy um, and had done time with the American Navy in the Korean War. So he, he actually spoke some English. So not only was he a, a, a forest monk, a meditation monk, but he also could talk with Ajahn Sumedho. And so he told Ajahn Sumedho about Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Sumedho asked his, his preceptor if he could go down train with Ajahn Chah. And his preceptor said, fine, great, good idea, good idea. So this monk, whose name was Samai, then took Ajahn Sumedho down. They met Ajahn Chah, and, the, and they became his uh, very close student and, um, has, uh, and stayed with him uh, up ever since then in that, in that lineage. And, and uh, in many ways, the rest is history. Uh, Samai was a, was a very strict monk and um, you know, kept, the, kept the discipline very, very tightly, but uh, in some ways he kept it you know, too tightly and was, was in a way seemingly very, very rigid. And, and, uh, and so that when you hold the discipline too tightly, not in terms of um, you know, disrespecting the rules, but you get too fanatical and uptight about it, then it's very hard to sustain that for very long. And, so after seven or eight years, he ended up leaving the monastery. And then because he left, he felt a lot of self-criticism, and that he was a failure, and he couldn't do anything, and he flunked out. And, and he became uh, a, a drunk. He became a serious alcoholic and uh, a hopeless drinker, really a dreadful, um, kind of depressed, and um, really couldn't pull himself out of it. And every so often, he'd come around to uh, um, Wat Bapong and see Ajahn Chah again, kind of have a good cry, and and, um, and every time he came uh, uh, to visit, then Ajahn Chah said to to uh, Ajahn Sumedho, "You should make sure you go and see Samai and spend time with him and and express your gratitude to him because he was the one who brought you here. And every day you should share the the merit of your life as a monk with Samai because it doesn't matter what he does." or how, how much of a mess he makes of his life. He's the one who brought you here. And so you should always remember that, never forget that, and that you should always not feel indebted. To, there's not really like indebted, but, but never, never let yourself forget that, because there's a bond between you. And because of that bond, you'll be able to help him, because you, no matter how low he gets, he'll be able to remember there's one good thing that I did. In the midst of that, at least one absolutely surefire good thing I did was I brought Sumedho to Ajahn Chah. And eventually, uh, he, um, in, uh, he died. He was drunk in the street and got knocked down by a car in, in Nongkai and, and killed. But uh, Ajahn Sumedho has often talked about that and expressed uh, that uh, how powerful that has been for him and how much it meant to him. And also, it was true that when he, he did meet with Samai, that he really could see that uh, he could help, it was helping him. It was, uh, it was a, a bright light in his otherwise miserable world. And so that in whatever state of being that he might have moved on to, even while he was alive, there, there was a, a, a kind of support and a, a, a kind of a blessing in an otherwise very dark and, and uh, dismal realm. So that's something that we can all do. Uh, that, uh, and sometimes we can be pretty dismissive or unforgiving or just forget people kind of way back. But it, just to, to uh, remember those, those little threads, those people, those contacts that cause us to, to awaken to the spiritual path. And there's 10,000 strange ways that we might have uh, been drawn into this. And say, oh yeah, it was that guy at the gas station. It was that school teacher of mine. Yeah, I couldn't stand it, but she said this one thing that always stuck in my mind, or whoever it might be, that uh, just to, to bring those into our hearts and to, to remember them, to really consciously share the, the blessings of our life with them.
prominent sets of, of beings to uh, to share our blessings with and to cultivate gratitude towards is parents. And um, the uh, uh, and this is very strong in within Buddhist cultures, Buddhist countries to um, to express and to develop have gratitude to your to your parents for, for giving birth to you, for raising you, and so forth. Now, oftentimes in the West, as soon as you say gratitude to parents, you can feel the ire rising in the room. So you didn't meet my mother. You know. <laughs> Well, let me tell you about my dad. <laughs> so that you know, the, the, the word parent uh, doesn't always have quite the uh, sort of uh, emotionally positive loading <laughs> that, it, uh, you know, that it, uh, it might have in, a, in some other circumstances. Um, the, the way that the Buddha talks about it in the scriptures, he said, even if you were to carry your parents around, so you had your mother on one shoulder and your father on the other shoulder, and you carried them around from this day forth until the day they died, uh, taking care of them in all circumstances, looking after them, and that, and even when they lose their faculties, and, and you get quite graphic, like even when they lose control of their bowels and their, their uh, uh, feces are running down over your shoulders, across your neck, it's all, it's all there. And Deliver, again, deliberately, kind of, ugh. and like, would I really, would my mom, mother and father really want to be carried around on my shoulders? <laughs> I mean, it's really very impractical. But he's sort of, again, the Buddha is wonderful at creating these very graphic images. That, you know, you, you remember, like, wow, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> so even if we were to physically carry them around, so still, you, you, you couldn't repay the, the debt of gratitude that you owe them. But then, as, all, uh, as in many of his teachings, is that if you did all this stuff for them, things for them, like looking after them, feeding them, bathing them, nursing them, etc., you couldn't repay them. But the one way you can repay them is to teach them the Dhamma. And if they're, not, and if they're um, away from the path of, of virtue, to help and bring them uh, to, to living virtuously. So this is how you can repay the, the debt of, of gratitude. So, yeah, even though it, some of us might have a very positive uh, relationship to our parents, and, and that um, it is a, uh, uh, something that it rises easily forth in the heart, Other of us might, others of us might have a very painful, difficult, very conflicted, ambivalent uh, sense of relationship to our parents. And even if that's the case, uh, that uh, one of the... Uh, that even if a, a parent has, has caused us a lot of harm or there's a very painful relationship, even that um, good and, and uh, benefit can come forth from that in that uh, this, the, that painfulness can itself be the cause for us to develop spiritual qualities and noble qualities. Um, there was this fellow some years ago, he wrote a, wrote a book called uh, The Spiritual Advantages of an Unhappy Childhood, or words to that effect. He was so impressive, opera actually ended up at his feet on her, uh, on her TV program, I was told. <laughs> so that uh, when we're talking about gratitude to parents, it's not trying to just paint everything rosy. But just seeing the you know the different dimensions of it, and for myself, I, my my mother is a very saintly and, and totally lovable person, and has has always um, been so um, uh, kind of humble and generous that she's always drawn you know good and kind people to her and throughout her life. My father is a bit of a different character, and I had a, a you know, very painful. Uh, tense relationship with him through my, particularly through my teens. Like, both of them, both of my parents were the youngest children of old parents. And, and I'm the youngest child, and they were quite old when they married. So my grandparents were all born in the 1870s, 1880s. Seriously. And I'm not that old, I'm, I'm, I'm 45. So, 
Um, so my parents all grew up in like Victorian Edwardian households. So their version of the world, and my version of the world, born in 1956, coming into my teens in 1967, <laughs> it was a rather different world. Again, when things were getting very, very interesting. So um, the clashes between my father and myself were, were um, spectacular. And, uh, and so I developed a lot of, of resentment uh, and, and there was a great deal of tension between us. Um, but you know, as I got older, and then you know, 10, 15 years into monastic life, and as he got older and, and his life, he, he was less sort of in charge of his own world and, and was much more, um, in a way, humbled by the aging process and the, the loss, the death of many of his friends and peers. And that, uh, his own sort of self-assurance softened and his own kind of um, fascist <laughs> tendencies <laughs> loosened somewhat. He was uh, one of my great delights in life was uh, threatening with marrying a, a West Indian girl. <laughs> He's a very racist man. And there's other features as well, but I won't go into that. But um, what I began to realize, when I put myself into his shoes and, uh, and the kind of saw how his life had been and the difficulties he'd had his, in his childhood, and, and it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, wow, he was actually doing the best he could. Wow, what a thought. And it was suddenly all of those sort of the, the years of, of resentment and negativity and, and snide remarks I was dropping left, right, and center. And like suddenly, it was, and, I, and I knew that was a, a completely valid intuition. It's like, yeah, that's right. The guy was really doing the best he could with what he knew and what he thought was right. Huh. And I found this immense gratitude. And, that, uh, and he really was a kind of which end do I hold sort of guy you know, when, when confronted with the baby. <laughs> he was really not equipped for domesticity. My mother, she said, just after the birth of my eldest sister, she had, even though she was just recovering from the birth, she nearly slugged him because she said, when she, when the, there she is, sitting in the hospital bed, holding their you know first child, and and his his uh, his initial com his first comment was, do they all look, do they always look like that? But <laughs> 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 she's brimming with this, this abundant love for this, this, this being that she just produced into the world. We all look like that. <laughs> so. But I began to feel this immense gratitude for my father, which wasn't kind of ignoring his, his sort of negative qualities, but saying there was a bigger, there was a, a bigger um, picture there as well. Also, to cultivate gratitude towards uh, the people who are our friends, also to our favorable circumstances, you know, the, the, to feel gratitude for what um, good fortune we have, the, the, the karma, our karma has ripened in such a way that we are, that we are born into a situation where, uh, so we, we have a uh, reasonable health, or we have um, good friends, we have a uh, we live in a, a privileged situation here, like living in, in North America, kind of first world life. Most of us from reasonably comfortable, you know, middle class, uh, well-supported uh, existences, um, for the majority of us, probably, that's, that's the case. Some of us might even feel guilty or uncomfortable about you know, being a, a, in the privileged class and, and doing a lot better and being, living a lot more comfortably than, than much of the world. So it's important to, to see that you know, cultivation of gratitude isn't it? sort of trying to make ourselves feel uh, sort of justifying our own uh, benefits or um, feeling, make, trying to make ourselves feel guilty for being a have rather than a have not or, or like feeling like we should give everything away. It's, it's really interesting that picking up the tone and the, the style of the Buddha's teaching is that 
he uh, he encourages generosity, but for his sort of the the wealthy disciples that he had, lay disciples, he never says to any of them, you know, you should really take you know all of your wealth and just get rid of all of it, give it all away, or dump it in the Ganges. Or he actually encourages people if you're if you're rich, make use of it, you know, use it to help other people be happy, uh, experience the joy of giving, uh, be able to. Uh, if you have wealth, then you can provide for your family in a good way. You can have a pleasant living situation, and actually consciously and and uh, encouraging people to um, uh, see that their their material uh, wealth and resources are, uh, are something that can be um, appreciated. We can feel grateful for that and uh, make good use of it, and use it as a source for for creating good karma within for ourselves and creating joy and, and um, blessedness, good fortune for the people around us. So in, then in generating, cultivating gratitude for um, you know, our, our living situation or the good relationships we have, if we have got a you know, present um, uh, like a harmonious relationship with our partner, our spouse, or with our cat, <laughs> our dog, we have a you know a present uh, a house or apartment to live in, or we have a good uh, relationship with our siblings and children and so on. These are things to rejoice in, and to uh, to allow ourselves to to uh, to be kind of consciously glad of that. Similarly, our health. You know, what uh, what you know, good health that we have. Um, and the 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 best way though of of uh, of Relating to this, because it, it, in the Buddhist language, it's not like we thank you, Lord, for all these blessings, um, because it's you know we, without the Creator God in place, it kind of doesn't really work. <laughs> but like uh, more of a of a, a selfless appreciation of how uh, um, we can appreciate, open the heart to uh, acknowledge. Yeah, it is. It's 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 delightful. It's it's convenient. It's helpful to have these faculties, these friends, these, this uh, living situation. But the way that we most uh, skillfully handle that is to hold it in the environment of of impermanence. Like these, the, the chance that we do. I'm of the nature age. I'm of the nature to sicken. I'm of the nature to die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Will become separated from me. Now this is not in order to generate depression, <laughs> but just in case you're starting to feel good, get a load of this. You know, <laughs> you're going to die. You're going to lose it. It's all leaving. <laughs> well, that's not the point. The point is that that um, we easily generate an undercurrent of fear, anxiety that it might all leave. Or what will I do if it does go? Or I want to keep it? Or it's mine? And there's this unconscious tension of trying to hold it, trying to keep it, and fear that it's going to go. So what these reflections are doing is helping us turn towards it and say, yes, it will go, because it has to. It will change, because it can't not. Everything that comes together must separate. That's nature. So rather than than um, uh, say hoping that it won't change and hoping that we can keep it and fearing that it, it uh, that it's going to go, it's like turning directly towards that, doing 180 degrees and and going against that current of anxiety of clinging, of wanting, like taking refuge in the material world or the, the world of of permanent relationship and so forth. Not it's like reflecting, looking at, uh, at that tendency to take refuge in that, my things, my friends, my family, my children. Say, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's there, and it's delightful, and it's good, but it's not a refuge. You know, the true refuge is in wisdom, is in knowing, is in Dhamma, in Sangha. That's the dependable refuge. So that it's when we hold it in an atmosphere of anicca, then we can really appreciate it, but we're not depending upon it. So you can actually uh, delight in it much more freely, because you're not feeling like you've got to sustain it or you've got to keep it. 
like when we reflect upon our health. Say, how wonderful, my eyes still work. Great, when you, you get up from the sitting cushion, hey, I can still walk. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, kind of. Like uh, our friend uh, Daniel Barnes, uh, many years ago, introduced me to the, the, um, the uh, acronym TAB, which is the way that the, this, uh, Daniel is, in a, is a quadriplegic and in a wheelchair. And so the t the we are the TABs, those of us gathered here, the temporarily able-bodied. <laughs> That's how the Aslod are referred to by the, the wheeled beings. <laughs> the temporarily able-bodied. So, just to be able to appreciate that, and appreciating our privilege, you know, the, the privilege that we do have, how wonderful that you know, we do have a day of safety, a day of, of, of relative lack of discomfort in the body. Amazing. How marvelous. My legs still work. Great. I can see. Hey, great. I can uh, eight precept novice in Thailand, and this monk was uh, working on this sewing machine trying to fix this old Singer pedal sewing machine. He had this screwdriver and he was working on the, trying to get this, this um, bird screw out of the plate to, to take the, the, the plate off uh, uh, on the, the, the bottom of the sewing machine. And he was working away at it and of course I'm watching him and getting very involved in the task and suddenly the, the screwdriver snapped. And so my thought, as soon as it snapped, was damn, broke. And and uh, but as soon as I as I thought damn, he said Anicca. and that really struck me. It was like this epiphany I had, the screwdriver epiphany. Like, isn't that amazing? He saw that it was always impermanent. I thought it was a screwdriver. He saw it was just earth element temporarily in screwdriver form, you know, during the flow of its changes, and now it's not a screwdriver anymore. <laughs> Uh-huh. So when we, we hold things in that way, then we use them, we delight in them, we're glad to have them, but then as they go, it's not, oh my God, my eyes are going, that face in the mirror, oh dear. First thing, I think you should ban bathroom mirrors, especially first thing in the morning. Ooh. What? He's only 45? No. <laughs> this haggard ancient thing staring back at you. No, it's just, that's the way it goes. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, oh my God, it's all leaving. Sagging. Where else is it going to go? <laughs> the gravity pulls down. Also, uh, as I was saying before about families and, and if we have difficult relationships with our parents, also gratitude even for the, like in the, the chant and sharing of blessings, those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile. Sharing the blessings of our life with those who are hostile, sharing, you know, we can experience gratitude towards that which is unfortunate circumstances, the painful things of our life. When we have lost our legs or our loved one has left us or has died, or we have had some kind of grand failure or disaster. Um, we have been done wrong, some unrequitable romance or, uh, or hurt by a, a parent or by the government, or, or just like now in, in the, the, the global situation, the, the, the um, you know, some, a situation that you wouldn't choose. You know, here we are, it's Ramadan, winter setting in, um, still bombing Afghanistan, and uh, the kind of plight and difficulty of the people there, in particular at this time, living in terror and uncertainty, and even the most uh, painful, unfortunate circumstances. What we wouldn't choose, if we have the right attitude, you know, we can. It can be a great spiritual advantage, and we can we can turn it around. And probably all of us have had friends or people that we know or those close to us experiencing great, or even ourselves, experiencing great difficulty, things we would never have asked to happen. But then we find the sense of 
of, um, you know, it's crazy, but this is actually the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I've I've known several people as they're you know dying of, of cancer or AIDS. People in either the people themselves or people in their families. A, a woman whose sixteen-year-old daughter died of cancer said, "This is the. It's terrible to say, but this was the most amazing and wonderful gift that she gave to the family. It was she had this you know, very very virulent form of cancer. She, there was a little lump on her on her thumb." Uh, that was noticed in September, and she was dead by Christmas. And uh, she said, the, the, the mother who I, I, I knew said it was, it was the most extraordinary, those three months were the most extraordinary months of all of our lives. And even though we're, we're deeply sad to have lost our daughter, what she gave us during that time, what she brought forth was something that none, none of us ever would have known or had ever experienced in any other human being, but it, it summoned forth these incredibly beautiful spiritual resources in the daughter, who was a, just a, not some kind of avatar. You know, she was a regular sixteen-year-old English girl who liked, you know, horses and boyfriends. But as her life fell away, this incredible wisdom and spiritual beauty emerged. slightly different um, note, uh, one of the, the uh, stories um, that is uh, on a kind of more everyday level um, was uh, one of our, the monks of our community, Ajahn Sujita, had a, a many years ago, Ajahn Sumedha gave him the opportunity to go off to Thailand and spend a few months there um, traveling and um, being in retreat. You know, he'd been uh, living with the community in England for a long time. This was like a sort of monastic holiday. You know, okay, Suji, go off to Thailand, have a, you know, do what you like, no duties, have fun. So, <laughs> all those years of having been in England, working, working hard to repairing this old house we had down in the country, and and uh, being a, an unselfish community member, suddenly it was like, wow, I can just you know, travel where I want. <laughs> spend my time as I like, go and retreat. Hey, great, at last. You know, all those, you know, me off alone in the forest fantasies. At last you could kind of, right, now. <laughs> I get to fulfill all my, my fantasies. My, my kind of, these are kind of monastic fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> or at least, the monastic fantasies that we can talk about in public, you know. <laughs> so, uh, he, um, he'd heard from Ajahn Sumedho about when Ajahn Sumedho was a young monk, he'd gone off and he'd found this island in the Gulf of Thailand where there's this ruined Khmer temple on this, this island. There's a, just a small fishing village, and off in the interior of the island there's this old ruined temple, and in the ruined temple there was this underground chamber which was totally silent, dry, perfectly quiet, peaceful. And so um, Ajahn Sumedho thought, that's where I'm going for my retreat. I'm going to find the island, I'm going to find the temple, I'm going to find the, the underground room, and I'm just going to, just going to sit for day, weeks. Get it all figured out. And to cut a long story short, he managed to find the island, got over there, kind of went on arms around, met some of the villagers. They were very happy that he was there. He made it clear, even though his tie was a bit rudimentary, he made it clear that he wanted to, you know, he wanted to be alone. <laughs> he didn't need a lot of disciples coming to help him every day. So, and he found the old temple and he found the underground chamber. He thought, great, this is perfect. But um, what he hadn't reckoned with was that um, Thailand um, was uh, starting to get into the Christmas spirit even though it's not a Christian country by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, in Thailand, they love festivals, and they love reasons to celebrate. And so Christmas was becoming, even though the theology was a bit unclear, <laughs> it was definitely, there was shopping, and there was, and there was 
fun, and there was there was Christmassy things. We were picking out various bits and pieces, and he actually, uh, on his way through Bangkok, he'd seen. This is absolutely true. He saw Father Christmas nailed to a cross <laughs> on one department store. They, so they they really were not quite clear on the concept, but. <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely true. But by the he got he got to this island which is called uh, Gosi Chang, Gosi Chang, and uh, he uh, had had not re- even though the the, the underground uh, room was 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 very quiet in terms of the you know local noise and and um, animal sounds and so forth. He hadn't reckoned on um, amplified sound, and he hadn't reckoned on Christmas. <laughs> and what happened was that the uh, across the bay, a beautiful still night across the bay, um, at the local temple in in town, they decided to have this Christmas festival. But the only Christmas music they had was a, a record, uh, a 45 of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> So here was Ajahn Sajito, the lone yogi, <laughs> sitting in his underground chamber, you know, hell-bent on Nibbana, and, <laughs> and what, as he stood in there, and slowly across the waters, and a very tiny nose. So, so uh, again, to cut a long story short, he, he first of all, he said, <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. And then he said, OK, well, it won't last long. It's a very short song. It'll be over in a minute. <laughs> but of course, being the only record they had, <laughs> as soon as it reached its end, find they, you know, paused for a moment, <laughs> began again, and again, and again, <laughs> over and over. And so his rage is, is mounting and mounting. Don't they realize there's people trying to meditate out here? How can they? This is incredibly bad karma, interrupting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So then through the, and it went on for hours, hours and hours, over and over and over again. He said, they can't, they can't want to hear it again. So he went through rage, exasperation, and um, just, uh, this sort of heartbreak, whimpering, pleading, the all these different shades of emotional you know, strain and color, until finally, finally, and so this is in, in glorious terms exactly what he would not have chosen. Finally, he just surrendered. Said, okay, well, I guess just for the rest of the night, this is going to be Rudolph and the Red Nose Reindeer. Okay, I'll just, I give up. I gave up. And, and then, he, as he gave up, he, he just sat and he just sat there and he started, rather than listening to his own reactive mind, he started to listen to the words of the song. So, oh, that's quite sweet, really. <laughs> what a nice story. <laughs> you know, there he is, uh, being rejected by, kind of looked down upon and laughed at by the other reindeer because of his funny nose. And, <laughs> I've got kind of a funny nose and funny teeth. People used to laugh at me as well, yeah. That's really horrible, isn't it? And then, you know, then you have this, all this tragedy of your Father Christmas and wants to give out all his presents, and he can't give out his presents because it's too foggy and he can't drive. All the kids are going to be disappointed. And, yeah, yeah, that would be really bad. Oh, if I was Father Christmas, that was happening to me, I'd feel really terrible too. And, ah, and how wonderful. And then, Rudolph is the one who can save the day. Oh, that's really great. Isn't that wonderful? And then, not only can he save the day, then everyone's really appreciative. Oh, and then he finally is sitting there, tears running down his face. It's, it's, it's kind of bliss and rapture. This is feeling this incredible mudita for Rudolph and Father Christmas and all the kind of un- ugly, unloved, rejected beings of the world. And so then you know, he spent the rest of the night in this kind of rapturous state, <laughs> just feeling mudita for Rudolph. And 
So if you said, okay, Ajahn Sajita, how would you like to be in retreat with, with three hours of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, just for, just for a kick-off, just for starters? I mean, you'd never do this. But yet he was able to find this kind of beautiful, um, kind of a blissful experience um, through what, what uh, in a thousand years you would, you would never have selected. <laughs> so this is a, a kind of memorable example for us, and so that um, to see that you know we we can find gratitude you know, if we have the right attitude. So I actually also, as I was contemplating this, it came to me that, that gratitude you can think of as generously receptive attitude, GR attitude. Generously receptive. Well, you can make your own up. So it came to my mind. Like that, if we're generously receptive and we, we really allow things into the heart, then we find this quality of, uh, of brightness and, and uh, this joyful relationship. We enjoy life. Not because it's, it's all delicious or what we like, we get what we want. Getting what we want makes us happy, but that uh, um, giving or the, that generosity of heart, that openness of heart, unselfishness, and uh, gratitude is what brings joy. So we enjoy life by letting it be filled with, with joy in that way. Just the last thing that I, I'd say is um, the um, we can easily think of gratitude in a, in a dualistic way, like me being grateful for that thing. Um, and as with many of the Buddha's teachings, there's a, a, uh, it's, it's a teaching which, or an expression which pertains to a certain level of our being. So um, it, it, is a, it is, in a way, a dualistic um, concept, me being grateful for that thing. Um, but as with everything, and the, the Buddha's teaching is pointing us towards, it's, it's also something that we let go of, so that we don't want to, it's, if it gets stuck at me trying to be grateful for everything, then that's, that's still a limitation. And we can find a place, it, the brightness that that brings to the heart can support, and, and is a support for the insight whereby it's a, there's a a letting go of self and other, and where, where subject and object, self and other, is is relinquished. But that, in that same quality of, of openness, it leads to that where that space where where gratitude or, or forgiveness or even goodness doesn't belong. It's like there's no me here and that out there. That um, that. Uh, and that quality of, of uh, relinquishment is, in a way, the fulfillment of, of the gesture of gratitude. Um, you know, so that uh, it's a it's a pathway to that. I like I was using that um, because the Buddha's uh, when the Buddha was passing away um, and he's lying on on the uh, beneath the, these twin sala trees in Kusinara and the flowers are raining. The trees are burst forth into blossom out of season and the flowers are raining down and there's mandarava blossoms raining down from the heavens and heavenly sandalwood powder and and there's all the, the celestial musicians are doing their thing, and all the heavens are resonating, and there's just gazillions of gods and devas and brahmas and nagas and people, uh, as far as the eye can see, or can't see. They can spread out all around the Buddha. And uh, Ananda says, you know, this is amazing, this is incredible, this is marvelous, Lord. And says, the heavens are resounding with the sounds of the Gandavas, and the flowers are raining down, and Never before has the Tathagata been so honored, been so revered, so so um, respected. And this is what I was describing as Amisa Puja, like the gestures of of um, reverence. 
uh, an external reverence or uh, gestures of gratitude. And the Buddha says, even so, Ananda, never before has the Tathagata been so honored, so respected, so um, so venerated as, as in this way uh, at the Parinibbana. But if those, if people really, really wanted to venerate and respect and honor the Tathagata in the very best way, then they would carry out his teaching. They would let go of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is the other piece, which is Patipati Puja, the the um, the, uh, the puja of the of the practice. So that to fulfill gratitude, it's not just a matter of making gestures of gratitude or even having ideas of gratitude, but essentially it's that a complete uh, relinquishing of of self-concern, and then the heart abides in that relationship of of delighting in enjoying the in the presence of the Dhamma. So it's actually the Dhamma enjoying its own presence is where gratitude takes us to. So I hope this for consideration.